thanks everyone for coming out this morning. Uh, I'm Glenn Kaiser. I'm the director of the Dolby Institute. And um, today's uh, presentations uh, here are a uh, co-production of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. I'm really excited this morning to talk about the, um, the work done on Carnival Row, which is a pretty, uh, pretty amazing show. It's on a size and scope of unlike anything I have ever seen uh, on episodic television before. And I'm excited to be able to talk about the show with uh, Mark Fishman and, and Robert Carr this morning. Uh, we're going to start with playing a clip. We've got, a, we got a, uh, I think, five short clips um, from different episodes uh, of the show. Uh, we're going to start off uh, this morning showing you, this is a, a super brief clip from, I think, episode six. So this is uh, towards the beginning um, of the episode, uh, and, and, and you'll see a little bit of a, um, kind of the, the action tone of the show and get a sense of what's happening with the sound. And then uh, I th we're, we're playing the opening title sequence, um, and you'll get, a, uh, you'll get to hear the, um, just the extraordinary score uh, that was done for the show. Sorted out if they'd any kind of relationship. No, sir. They didn't know each other. Been on the case with a star. He's got nothing. He's a good man, Morange. Never took so much as a stiver for the work he did for us. So it is his civic duty. Not true enough, sir, but with respect, there were rumours. Rumours? Word was that he saw it as his civic duty to do other jobs too. Jobs most doctors wouldn't touch. Such as? Abortions, reconstructions. What, convicts looking to have their brands removed, that sort of thing? And pigs looking to pass, getting their ears bobbed, their wings sheared. Happens more often than any of us would care to think of. Hello. Sir. I said it's your case. If there's a connection between the victims, then find it. Yes, sir.
Mark and Robert, thanks for coming in. Welcome. Sure, thank you. Thanks for having us. So, um, like I said uh, in the intro, this is uh, uh, just an amazing achievement of size and scale. Um, but I know, you know, with, with episodic, it's always a challenge uh, to fit within the, the envelope of, uh, you know, the resources that you're given to do the show. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you became involved with the show and kind of uh, what, the, what the production kind of pipeline was like? Sure. Um, this show, the producer, Alex Shevchenko, I had done season one of Daredevil with. And so we have worked together over the years. And um, when I was hired on Daredevil, he really wanted to kind of bring a feature mentality to streaming uh, shows. And um, it was just part of that relationship that uh, he wanted to come back. And they knew this was a kind of the first in-house show they wanted to do in Atmos for Amazon. Jack Ryan had been done outside of Amazon. Um, so it was just something we talked about and we scheduled and planned. And um, So Atmos was part of the concept of what you guys were going to do from the, from the beginning of the show? Yeah, Alex was very insistent on doing it from there and with the, the flying fay and the wings and all this other stuff and the orchestra, it was designed for that. And so they decided to... Um, spend the extra money, give us the time. And it was from the outset what we decided to do. That's great. Uh, so Mark, you mixed dialogue and music and Robert, you uh, mixed effects. Is that the way it kind of worked out on the stage? Uh, yeah, that was pretty much the plan from the beginning. And Mark brought me on uh, very early on, I think maybe more than a year and a half ago. Um, he approached me and asked me if I was interested in doing it and gave me an idea of what the storyline was. and. It was definitely up my alley. So, talk a little bit about the sound design and the and the, and the edit for the show because the obviously the the raw materials that you guys have to work with are super critical and important. And there's a lot of really fantastic sound design in the show. Yeah the the timeline for that was a little bit jumbled because initially we were supposed to start the show almost eight months before we did. So there was a whole other crew that initially worked on it. Uh, initially, it was Brad North was the sound supervisor. Uh, he had a team um, working on it. They did a massive amount of editorial, some of the sound design, specifically for the Dark Asher, the Fairy Wings, and kind of put some pieces together that wound up in a uh, picture editorial. Some of that got sidelined. Uh, the characters changed, specifically the Dark Asher changed dramatically. It was like a guy in a suit initially and wound up with what you see on screen now, which is this hodgepodge of various creatures. Um, so towards the end, we had mainly Troy Premise was our uh, main sound designer editor on the show who carried the whole thing through. But then we had to <laughs> bring on some of the initial editors to cut in pieces because they knew where all the bodies were buried for, you know, uh, with the Dark Asher, the Fairy Wings and things along those lines. So they kind of knew, oh yeah, I was grabbing this piece and how that was created because the picture had changed so much, nobody knew how the pieces were actually designed. So, and we also wound up doing a lot of design on the stage. Uh, specifically surrounding the music because the music was so dynamic and so amazing that we were able to it was in all the frequencies where you thought you were going to have exactly. <laughs> room for, for yeah, sound so design a lot of changes there um we were chatting earlier and and i was i was saying to these guys um uh i, I binged the show this week uh knowing that we would be talking about it today and i never once skipped the opening title sequence when i was watching just because that music is so gorgeous um i understand there's a story about the organ yeah so nate Barr, the composer um amazing composer and I think you know Rob and I've worked on plenty of projects that in the eight hours of the show there's not a bad cue and um, 
he actually bought the Fox pipe organ, so that's actually the Fox pipe organ, and um, they, the recording, it actually isn't that big, and that was one of the biggest things that Alex wanted. He, he calls it the lowers. He said he always wanted it to go to the lowers, and so he there's, would, there's quite a bit of low end in there, there yeah. There is, and that's all, I mean, we derive that on the stage and with EQ. There's actually not a lot of sub in that, um, the organ there. But that was um, kind of the idea, and every, we always got a laugh every time the main title went during a playback. Um, the music is obviously super important to the show, uh, and and does a lot in terms of setting the tone. It's sort of for those of you who may not have seen the show, it's kind of sort of vaguely set in a world that sort of resembles Edwardian England, but obviously has these fantastical aspects with uh, all these kind of magical creatures. And so, the organ music is really, you know, then the score kind of. Uh, feels like it, it sits it in that time period. Were there any conversations around, um, were there were any issues that came up around handling the music for the for Dolby Atmos for, in the mix? No, so on this show they decided to mix in stereo, so they just gave me, I think, 16 stereo pairs. Yeah. And um, it was just a thing where I went through every cue, I listened to everything, listened to what was separate. There's a bunch of cues where there's choir overhead, There we were moving things around, and um, that was always Alex's thing. If we heard something we thought could be cool or there was percussion, we'd move it around and that was the great thing. Sometimes on the broadcast stuff, we just get a stereo. So it's just a lot of up and down and getting it out of dialogue. On this show, we spent a lot of time putting it in the room and um, I'm a little unique in a lot of mixers I've talked to. I use the overhead arrays in Atmos. So um, a lot of my reverbs and stuff are up top in the upper speakers and that was just, we created it and they let us kind of do it and Alex would come in and maybe have some comments but that was kind of Rob and I's doing and being able to get things out of the way for Rob too when we'd have chases and stuff being able to have the percussion separate was Nate's not a guy that's proud he wants the show to work so he gave us the tools to do that yeah was this the first time for both of you mixing and, and working in Dolby Atmos for uh, for television um, tell us a little bit about the, the the setup and the room where you mixed and how you how you kind of integrated Atmos into your your production workflow I'll let Rob start, but we actually had a very different workflow from each other on the show. Yeah, so so we were both, we were kind of working in the box, but kind of not uh, on Mark's side. He was specifically using the S5 console, um, but some of his objects were within, I think in the music was actually in the box. Um, and then on my side, I was actually working on an S3, so I was 100% in the box. Um, as far as my setup goes, I spent a lot of time uh, kind of checking to make sure on the fold down process that I wasn't losing things or that I wasn't creating phase issues. Um, so I had this setup with a dome uh, that I could kind of pan into that would give a sense of height, but still work with the five one and the two track as things started to fold down. And I spent a lot of time playing with that because I found that as I made the objects bigger or smaller, place them in certain locations, it would create issues further down the line. And we didn't have the um, option to create different masters for each version. So it needed to always be able to waterfall effect all the way down to the bottom. So th that was really a big part of our time spent was making sure that what we were doing in the Atmos was going to translate down, but still give us everything we wanted at the uh, higher end. Yeah, and I worked, I mean, as Rob said, I worked on this show um, specifically on the S5 console. So this was kind of a very traditional mix on my side of it. Um, and it, there was a good deal of flexibility as far as being able to bust. If I wanted something to be an object, I had a very, it was very quick for me to do that. Um, and printed, you know, traditional stems and all that stuff. Um, 
So yeah, it was it's interesting working in the kind of hybrid, but I think I think it worked. And what you're actually I mentioned this earlier, what you're hearing here is actually the master that the air master came from. So we talked about worrying about mix downs and stuff and um, I think Rob and I have been doing it long enough that we kind of know what what will get us into danger zones. But um, we, uh, because of the budget for these shows, we didn't have a separate print master day for the stereos and the five one. So everything was derived from the Atmos master. So on the first show, we played back the two track. I think for the first two shows, yeah, we listened to the stereo, and we'd maybe have one or two little notes about things. And then from that point on, we'd spot check the five one once or twice, and then. We just kind of let it fly. I mean, yeah, we kind I, of figured it out. I think throughout the whole series, we wound up only making one adjustment for the two-track compared to the Atmos, and it was, um, I added a little bit too much low end, which I can't resist, and it was just kind of overloading the uh, stereo speakers. So that was really the only adjustment we ever wound up making. But as far as panning and steering and a sense of the space, it was pretty incredible how well it translated down. Yeah, the, Dol the Dolby toolset has really matured over the years as far as the crash downs and the re-renders and all that. And so... We um, didn't worry so much about Atmos to stereo to 5.1, and I think we've gotten a lot of comments from people that you heard it in stereo. We've talked to people that have heard it in 5.1, so we're very, we're really proud of it, and we think it, uh, it helped all the formats starting in Atmos and going down from there. Now you, uh, you've mixed an Atmos for uh, theatrical uh, for feature film before, um, and I think that one of the reasons why they probably came to you guys was because this is obviously it's a very big show in terms of size and scope, and they probably wanted a pretty cinematic feel for it. But I'm curious now that you've done both, your experience is mixing an Atmos for uh, for episodic any different than mixing Atmos for theatrical? No, it's okay. Next question. <laughs> Um, no, the you, so you have to be aware of, there are some technological limitations, obviously. You know that all the streaming is going to happen with the loss, lossy codec versus the lossless codec. Um, so we always listen through the spatial coding um, emulation, so we'd know if we heard, if we felt we heard any kind of artifacting. But as far as what we chose to do and not do, um, and we can talk about this separately, but we didn't do anything different than we would do for a normal broadcast thing as far as worrying about that versus a feature. But as far as Atmos, we just, uh, when we were, we'd switch back to the 5.1 and the 2-track, it was just translating. It was what we wanted it to be. Yeah, the, the only thing that I'm more conscious of is the overheads and putting something specifically only in the overheads because I recognize that a lot of people don't have those at home. So, and I know that on the down mixes, it's still there, but it's not the same as if you're really trying to pinpoint something uh, in theatrical. So I'd, I would always be conscious of how much I would put something there and make sure I had maybe a sweetener or a secondary piece in the sides or the front that would kind of lend itself to further down the line. Why don't we take a look at the second clip? Um, what, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna lean on you to set these up because I'm not sure exactly what, to, what what's coming next. Oh yes. Yeah. So Everybody gets upset when they see this clip because they think the dog's going to get hurt, but you can see the dog's still alive. So this is actually the end of, this is the clip leading up to this from episode five. But uh, um, play it and then I can explain a little bit better after it.
Kitty. doesn't end well for that guy. Yeah, Dog's okay. The guy's not. <laughs> um, one of the things that really struck me about the show uh, is, is um, how, I think you got a sense of that from the, the clip, how detailed the mix is and how everything sits so perfectly, you know, in this, in this world that's built. I'm, I'm thinking about, there's a, I don't think we had this in one of the clips, but there's, a, there's one particular scene where Orlando Bloom's character, they throw a body down down a, down a well and you know I'm, I'm anticipating the sound of like you know it hitting the water after after a moment but like the this the impact in the water is perfectly situated with echoes coming up the and it's just there's no pasted on sound effects in this show everything sits very perfectly in this world so congratulations but get, you. I know you guys didn't have a lot of time but how did how are you able to get that kind of articulation on a fast schedule uh, they left us alone to do it. Um, you know, Alex is very good. Rob and I would have three days, I think, usually by our, usually yeah. three, three and a half days to do the mix. And then Alex, the producer, would come in at the end of the fourth day and we'd play back and do notes for the fifth day. So it was just, um, it's a lot of back and forth with Rob and I and um, it, it's just giving, it's getting the time to do that. And, uh, you know, sometimes Rob would go off on his headphones and do something if he had to work on some foley or do those things. And I'm a speaker hog, so I would usually take all the time to do the dialogue. Um, there's very little ADR in the show. Um, so there's a lot of production sound in there. Um, and there's not, because it's, there's no uh, electricity or anything else, you rely on natural ambiences. So Rob was always really having to work the backgrounds and play the foley up and do all those things. Um, so it was just it was just giving us the time to do it and not you know micromanaging us, which I really applaud Alex for. And we I've worked with him long enough that I know what he wants. Yeah, he he, he was really great with giving us time, as Mark mentioned. But you know, with that splash and a lot of other things, we would come back to it five or six times, just going it's ninety percent, but it's just not quite there. So you know, I'd cut some more stuff, or Lauren, our supervisor, would add some items, or. You know, it was it, there was a constant conversation. It was a really big collaboration uh, throughout the room, and there was no hesitation on anybody's part to go, "Is that any good? Should we make an adjustment? What do you think?" You know, because you can't get tunnel vision on things. Um, 
but yeah, there was a lot of detail and a lot of going back and saying, you know what, I think I can add this little piece here and we'll see it much more in a later clip uh, when we're kind of walking through the, through the row. But yeah, there was a lot of little pieces constantly being added um, or taken away. I've got a question about that, but was there anything specifically about that clip that you wanted to, to bring up to discuss? Um, I mean, there's a lot of, it, from a dialogue music perspective, um, I think the hurdy-gurdy music at the beginning is really interesting. Um, th that that song kind of plays a role in the show, so we hear it probably four or five times, and it's sometimes it's on gramophone, sometimes it's on the wax cylinders. Like So that was a really interesting thing to get that, the, the way the song sounds when it opens up is the way it came to me. So it was making it sound like it was on this, the cylinder and I put a little wow in it and did all that kind of stuff. And that was just, it was just fun stuff like that. So I'm really proud of that stuff. And really up until the dog kind of stops walking with the Foley, I mean, that's all production sound and just really tasteful Foley. And um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a fun clip. So you mentioned the, the, that there wasn't a lot of, of ADR, but you know, uh, obviously, I think they shot this um, uh, in Prague, uh, and, and it's a mixture of, I presume, kind of back lot and sound stage work. Can you talk a little bit about how the what shape the production tracks were when they came to you? Because um, you know, obviously, when you're normally when you're dealing with a period piece, one of the things that is normally kind of vexing is that these costumes are really they tend to be pretty loud. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, uh, I did a, I did a bit of work on some of the costumes with D. Russell with Isotope and going through that stuff. But the there were three different production mixers throughout the eight shows, and uh, I mean Rob can tell you some of the best production sound I've had. And I always had a choice. I usually always had the boom and the lavs, and I would just work through and pick which one was best. And um, I mean Rob, I don't. There's very few scenes that are ADR. You'll see another scene later that's in the rain that there's only a couple lines of ADR. Yeah, the, um, the biggest issues we dealt with were really environmental and we were able to yeah. attack a lot of that with backgrounds and using my side to smooth things out. Um, but Mark Mark would play a scene and I'm like, I don't know how you're gonna make that work, but he'd really do a pretty <laughs> incredible job uh, pulling the dialogue out of stuff, which you'll really see in the rain scene that we show later. That was almost inaudible. So. What's, uh, what's our next clip? I we forgot. Um, uh, I don't remember, honestly. Uh, this is either, I think it's coming to the row. Check it it's out. Either, well, it's either let's, 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 or it's them coming to the row. We'll run the next clip and uh, it'll be a surprise for us as well. <laughs>
See, you can't sell this critch bilge out on the road. Not without a permit. Unfortunately, it's your lucky day. Again, I've got some questions, but what, do you want to uh, talk uh, well, about that scene? That's actually the first time we come to the road. That's from episode one. And uh, probably one of the longest sections that we had to work on as far as detail. I had about 24, 26 channels of group walla for each, you know, each person was separate. And we didn't play it, uh, you know, obviously the voices were kind of felt not heard. We didn't want to be overwhelming. And it was kind of an introduction to a theme for the show. So we right. decided to drive it with music. But um, it, that's probably one of the sequences that took us kind of the longest as far as a dialogue group sequence. Yeah. And what was interesting about that, so we did these all out of order, very much so. And so it wasn't, it wasn't originally supposed to be that way, I understand. But you ended up mixing yeah. all the episodes out of order. Yeah. We actually started with episode. Seven. seven and ended five six it was all over the place so this is actually the episode that we did last which was the first episode so it was kind of unique but the advantage to that was we had really gone through the row and developed a pretty large palette of pieces that i could pick and choose from where i wanted to play them and um so when we got to this we kind of had an idea of how we wanted to end up so at first it was a little confusing but it really wound up as an advantage i think and we had maybe I think I had 30 tracks of spotted effects for the of spotted BGs for the sequence, plus maybe eight or 10 stereo and eight or 10 mono uh, beds, and then obviously specific effects for the carriage buys and things along those lines. So it was, it was a lot of stuff to go through, but it, it's all very light and very tender and just kind of specifically picked for various instances. Can you talk a little bit about what was your, uh, was there a process of, of communication between you guys and the sound editorial team in terms of, uh, you know, again, uh, it's astonishing to me that you guys mix these episodes and, you know, you, you said you did your first pass in three, three and a half days and then notes and fixes up to, you know, uh, up to about six days because there's just so much detail and the, and the clarity is really astonishing in it. Um, how did you... Did, did you work with the sound editorial team to prep stuff coming to you so that it could kind of sit nicely or did they do any sort of work in, in terms of objects or did you guys have to sort all that out on the stage? They, they, um, we had a lot of conversations uh, with the initial crew and then also the, the secondary crew, some of which uh, held over, but they did not do any panning or Atmos environments or anything like that. Um, some of the editors were actually working in stereo rooms and just Basically, I said, give me good choices and good organization, and then we can take it from there. Um, so there was constant communication. Uh, we had the supervisor, Lauren, in the stage, so I would kind of communicate with her, but really she'd be uh, dealing with Mark quite a bit, um, trying to make sure we had the proper group and things along those lines. I was texting all the time with the uh, editorial. I need this, give me this. Yeah, a lot of that, and we... I gradually would start to build folders for each location. And if I just felt, hey, I need something, I don't hesitate to just cut it myself. I think it'll be quicker um, time-wise. So I just kind of pull from that. Oh, I need another hammer. I need this or whatever. So we just kind of constantly pull things as we started to build it. Yeah, and I didn't, you know, everything pretty much comes to me mono except for sure. the music. So um, there was nothing ever really spotted for panning or any of that stuff. We just work through it and you get an idea like, Oh yeah, you know, tourmaline up in the window. We wanted to pan off and stuff like that. So, um, yes. 
This clip um, introduces something that that uh, that happens throughout the series that that um, that I love, which is um, the series is really playing with memory and flashback and kind of you know you, you get the you get the experience, especially with the Orlando Bloom character of like he has a long history and backstory and he'll he'll drop into it periodically and images will come up as they did in that clip and and can you talk just a little bit about the approach to uh, handling those sequences in the mix because sometimes they're music driven as it is here sometimes it's more sound design driven uh, i'm just curious to kind of hear the, what the process was for designing that kind of non-linear use of yeah i mean i think five, uh, philo is um orlando bloom's character i think he obviously has his themes and stuff and that song like i said that we heard in the other episode um kind of plays and comes and goes but it was kind of written the way that he's alone a lot of the time he's kind of He's a police officer that's kind of on the outs with these guys, and there's some suspicions about him and the creatures, and there's all these murders going around. And it's, you know, in, in the simplest terms, it's a procedural of him trying to figure out who's killed um, these couple of women and men on the row. Um, but a lot of times it was uh, written that it's really him figuring these things out. So that's where a lot of the detail stuff, it was always about trying to focus in and be with him. And so even this one, it wasn't about the distractions of all the people. It was him just kind of walking through this world. And I think that just comes from, you know, good writing and really having that insight into the character from the go. Yeah, and from a sound design standpoint, we tried to not go the standard, just wash and kind of, you know, sure, go, the quick, right, yeah, go yeah. the quick route. But <laughs> we would always introduce these because some of the flashbacks will come back in different ways two or three times throughout the series in subtle events. So we would try to use common threads just to kind of string them together, but not be in your face about it. So again, there was a lot of conversation about, hey, maybe we could add this little piece to kind of tie back to this previously. And um, yeah, it was just a lot of conversation in that respect. Did you find that there were creative ideas that you had? Obviously, you were working out of order. Did you ever find yourself wanting to go back into a work that you had done previously because you have a great idea later on that every day <laughs> I still have notes <laughs> season two right <laughs> how about uh, what's a uh, uh, let's let's uh, move on to our next clip I know the next clip so the next clip is um, I think it's the only clip with Cara Delvine's character um, vignette who's a creature called a fae so there's a, uh, a species called the fae that fly and she has a kind of tumultuous past with Orlando Bloom's character and so this was kind of a scene we put together to talk a little bit about ambiences and you know this is kind of a little fun atmos thing with her wings and uh it's a kind of nighttime thunder it's yeah it's super special. special yeah let's take a look
are a big deal uh, in the in the show uh, from a visual design standpoint but they also have a very distinctive and unique sound can you talk a little bit about was there some experimentation with the with the sound design and edit to kind of get that dialed in or or and and you like and that was a lovely moment where you know she goes overhead and drops down on him and the, you know you went into atmos on that but I'm, I'm curious to hear you talk about the process of of handling the wings and the sound design yeah so the wings were one of the pieces that were originally developed a very long time ago and we had uh a lot of conversations about what that was going to be and some of that I wasn't part of but um, what I was initially asked I kind of said we would just start throwing out ideas and I said kind of grasshoppers and you know like something kind of fatter um, but yeah the wings are made up of about three or four different pieces um, and the, the hardest part with them was actually giving them a sense of movement and not just being static and you know kind of almost as if the body is turning and wavering to give it a little bit of yaw, I guess you could say. Um, that, we would get pieces that would work with that, but then there was a lot of EQ and compression. I would actually mix a lot of the wing scenes at half speed while riding an mm. EQ in a faster pace, trying to give them a sense of movement and feel just as if they weren't just this, you know, just give them a sense. So yeah, they were uh, they were tough, but I think they came out really good. There's a, f a fight sequence in particular that I think it was driving these guys nuts. I would, you know, every wing was kind of panned a little bit off screen and a little bit different. And um, that had a lot of movement and feel to it. So, but. Yeah. Uh, can you talk ab uh, about the ambiences uh, a little bit? That there's some really lovely work in, the, in that particular sequence. But I'm, I'm curious about how you use beds versus objects in the, with the ambiences. Yeah, I mean, I had um, a lot of different choices, especially with the rains. Uh, there was quite a few different sequences in the show where there was uh, big rain sequences and we didn't want them to feel cut to cut common. We wanted to give a sense of either splash off roofs, roofs or um, on the ground or people walking, just very different textures to it to get a sense of it's not just a common rain. Uh, so I had some quad tracks that really worked well um, and uh, I was able to EQ all four of those corners differently at points to give a sense of turning around corners and things along those lines. Um, it, with this one, I think I used the overheads a little bit. I had a splash on the side roof, kind of just hitting the shingles. I had a different one over here for the windows. Um, and then on the metal railing, just the light texture there, but then also just a general bed. Um, yeah, the majority of it is beds, but then I also had thunder and things that were moving going through my dome. Cool. What's, uh, what's our next clip? So the last clip, there's a character named Imogen, who is a kind of socialite, uh, pretty racist woman. And she has... A this whole show is... It, it, uh, it's, it's really a fascinating kind of commentary on racism and xenophobia. And it's, uh, if you haven't had a chance to watch it yet, you should. It, it has a lot of interesting things to say about our current political climate, I think. Uh, but yes, yeah, so she's, she's a particularly, I think, difficult character. Yeah. She is, and she's, um, she's had a, they've had a mysterious stranger move next door. This man, Mr. Agrius, and he's what's called a puck in the show. And um, she's um, kind of in an uproar, and it's this big scandal that he's moved next door. And so 
uh, her and um, Vignette decide to go to the park one day, and that's what this scene is set up for. Let's take a look at it. Come along, Vignette. There they are, all the usual faces, promenading about this way and that way, like so many leaves in the wind. It looks like it might rain, after all. Where's my parasol? Sorry, miss. You don't know the first thing about being a lady's maid, do you? Run back and fetch it. Lively now. Excuse me. I... Excuse me, would you mind? If I came, excuse me. Allow me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Quite the deluge, isn't it? Monsieur Magellan. You know my name. Made inquiries. You left quite the impression on me the other day. As did you, most assuredly. Believe me, I am quite aware of the reaction my arrival to the neighborhood has provoked. Then perhaps you would consider a different address. I like it here. The crossing's lovely. As are its residents. How dare you speak to me like that? And how should I speak with you? Preferably not at all. I know what you're about, girl. I can smell it on you. You know what's in it, don't you? Piss. It's from a tro bitch in heat. What do you know? I know there isn't a man that can resist, and I also know you needn't have bothered. Close mic dialogue, rain. That's not a challenge at all. Yeah, so they looped the whole scene, and um, uh, I'm usually pretty stubborn about that, so when we started the scene, I turned off all the ADR and I went back to the production and just started working through it. And, um, and they were both very, very good uh, loopers, um, but it was just, I was really determined to use the production for that scene. So there's, I think, three ADR lines in that scene. And I think all of Imogen is still production. Um, there's a couple little bumpy ambience things, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, really proud of it. And Rob, it was a really big collaboration between Rob and I for what help I needed, what he wanted to do. There's some really cool stuff. It's one of those really cool Atmos moments. You know, at, rain usually makes sound when it hits the ground, so everybody tends to want to put it up top. But we had an umbrella, so it was really cool. Um, but yeah, that was a really um, challenging, fun scene to do. And uh, I think they're both so, I mean, I think they're both really good in that scene. 
Yeah, and I I, um, I want to come back to that for a second, but I yeah I think oftentimes when people think about mixing for Dolby Atmos and and using the overheads and whatnot, it's uh, you know, people I think tend to associate it with big, you know, sound design, you know, uh, moments of, of lots of stuff moving around. But I love the way that, you know, you just kind of gently put a little bit of thunder, you know, in the overheads to sort of, for me, it just, as an audience member, it just puts me in the space in a way that, that I can't, I can't really experience otherwise. So nice yeah. done. I mean, I do action is fun and, you know, gunfights and all that stuff and using Atmos for that is a lot of fun, but I truly really enjoy doing backgrounds and textures and you just have so much more creative freedom and you can really give the audience a sense rather than drawing them drawing their eye or ear to something specific so um that one in particular was kind of interesting because again we had the umbrellas we were able to give a little sense of it just kind of sitting right over their head without it interfering with the dialogue which is really nice um whereas normally it'd just be dead center and then i'm fighting you know making sure i'm not crowding the dialogue too much but still giving a sense of the umbrella but this was able to give a little disconnect which was really nice well it turns out to be really important in that scene obviously specifically but in general his character um you know it, he uh he turns out to be a really powerful charismatic character who drives the series but this particular actor's style is he speaks very quietly. He has a very chest resonant voice, which you heard in that show. But he, he, you know, and he moves in a very slow, subtle fashion, like you're drawn into him. From a sound perspective, I must, I, 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 I'm sure that like mixing his dialogue must have been a challenge because the actor speaks very softly, right? Yeah, it was, um, yes. And he does have a lot of low end and I don't, when I start mixing dialogue, I don't filter. I mean, I usually have a filter like 40 cycles and if I need to get rid of it. So he has that great natural low end of his voice. Um, again, it was just a lot of work with the costumes and just going in and a lot of dialogue isotope and a lot of clip gain and pro tools and Robert and I just working, you know, I usually would go through the scenes by themselves at the beginning and get it kind of where I felt it was smooth enough. And then Robert could start adding things in. Um, and a lot of actually, yeah, a lot of aggressive scenes didn't have music. There's a lot of two or three minute scenes where the two of them are just talking at a table and there's really not a lot to hide behind then. Right. Yeah. So it's just, it's just going through, you know, four or five seconds at a time and just trying to smooth it out. But we were talking about this a little bit before. Um, you know, I, I, it's, it's kind of funny. I've gotten questioned several times in the past few months from people saying like, I'm having, I have a hard time understanding dialogue in TV shows anymore, but I've, everything was so crystal clear in, in uh, carnival row, you know, all the dialogue sat in, uh, in the environments, but I was able, I never missed a syllable. So it was really just, it's, it's fantastic work. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I do, there's, there's we, we didn't show a clip, but I, I do want to call out your Foley team because there's some extraordinary work having the show. And I, and I can't think of another TV show I've ever seen where there's actually a major plot point that's revealed by the Foley. Um, and I'm thinking about, uh, there's a particular character who gets kidnapped and he's, he, he has a blindfold on a hood over his head while he's in captivity. Uh, and he's trying to figure out who might have abducted him. And he hears footsteps on stone, uh, after he's released that remind him 
that, that are the same footsteps that he heard when he had his hood on. And that actually communicates a major plot point without any dialogue. So, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful sound moment that drives the plot of the show. So congratulations on that. Yeah, I mean, the Foley played a huge role in this show. I mean, uh, especially in that sequence that you're talking about because we had to call back to that uh, eventually. So we were very specific with the tone of the heels and along those lines. And I think I tried four different versions of Foley and I wound up kind of using a combination of them for each footstep depending upon how we wanted it to play as she's crossing the room. So we spent a little bit of time on that. Um, but also with the pucks, they all have hooves for feet. So that, I think we went through three different iterations of what those feet were going to sound like and be, and also Agrius in particular. You know, obviously the production hooves didn't sound the way that we wanted them to. So we were constantly layering and trying to create a specific tone for how they were walking. There's a particular scene where he's coming into um, a very large room of people that are suddenly looking at him because he's in a place that would not, he'd typically be allowed um, to an auction house. And uh, we played a lot with just kind of a sense of the feet that he had a, like you said, he kind of moves very slowly and quietly, but with a sense of purpose and power. And so we were trying to fully really played a huge role in that. Well, again, congratulations, guys. It's just fantastic work. Thank you. And, um, and there's going to be a season two. Yeah. Started shooting last week. Yes. Great. Well, I'm now I want to rewatch the entire series, but it, here in this room, because it sounds crazy spectacular in here. Um, I think Michael's got a, a microphone. Are there any, are, are there any questions? We've got, we've got lights in our eyes, so we can't see very well. You guys actually just talked about it a little bit. Uh, I've been doing a lot of creature design lately, so I'm curious, in this particular show, as you mentioned as a moderator, it kind of has a little undertone about racial tension, and I felt, maybe it was just a psychoacoustics thing, but I felt like you guys did a good job of playing down the animal characters of Mr. Egregious when he was in those moments, and kind of playing up the animal characters on the row. Um, even with horses passing, you could still tell the kind of animal nature of uh, the horse-like characters that were actually, you know, had a humanoid side to them um, as creatures. Was there anything you did in the mix specifically other than just like certain placements to play with that a little in sound design aspect? Uh, I mean, there wasn't a lot of vocalizations for them. So we didn't, and obviously the pucks have a very standard human sounding voice. So we didn't make much of a change there. Um, so a lot of it actually was fully or just kind of their movements. But on the row in particular, we kind of played with an idea that human, fey, et cetera, were all of the same class system and level. So we didn't want anybody to really stick out. Um, you just wanted to get a sense of this is just several different races all kind of interacting on a common level. Um, but then there's instances where Agrius is the only uh, Fey in a very uncomfortable situation that we would kind of play up his movements very subtly just to give him a sense of either power or discomfort. Um, there's a couple scenes where um, they're in Imogen's house and he's kind of sitting in a chair having a very awkward and uncomfortable conversation with uh, several other very racist individuals. And uh, just we played a little bit with cloth movement really just to give him a sense of kind of holding his own but shifting in his chair a bit um, so it, it's all very subtle but yeah there, there was no vocalization sound design that was specifically designed for a lot of that so yeah I think there's one creature in all eight hours that actually has like a creature voice um, and it's a background creature but 
I think that the way that Travis wrote it and understanding the point, as a dialogue mixer, I was very curious not to separate all them. And that's part of the power is obviously everybody's the same and all that, but it was really um, the characters all intertwine. And so I didn't want to do anything to set them off. I didn't want Agrius to sound so different than Imogen to do any of these other things. So we kind of tried to, for the most part, forget that anybody was different on this show. And I think that plays up to what Travis's point was, obviously. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, I see that there's another question over here. It's for Robert. Uh, when you're talking about the fold downs, <clears throat> so in the monitoring and in the, when you mentioned about the 2.0 having extra bass, did you fix that in the Atmos or did you? Yeah, we had to fix everything in the Atmos because again, that was the only deliverable. Right. So. Uh, we did deliver a 5.1, but we were not doing a separate pass of it. Everything was derived from the Atmos, so, so when you it heard, all had to flow down. Right, so when you heard interesting artifacts or things you in the 2.0, you went back and fixed it in the Atmos, and then it just cascaded down from there. Correct, which and, we only made one adjustment. Okay, and then when you're monitoring in Atmos, you're just full, you're just going to the pull-down menu and listening in 715120 periodically throughout your mix to sort of see how your choices are coming down? Yeah, we actually had the re-renders uh, running live right. in the background, so we were able to kind of quickly flip on our BSS to the two-track. Right, so if you're placing something and then you just kind of quickly went to the 5.1 to see sort of how it folded down, that's how Correct. you informed your choices? Yeah, which we do often in... You know, if I'm doing a TV or streaming show in general, I'm always, even if we're mixing in five one, just pop to the two track to make sure it's it's playing correctly. Are there any differences in the specs uh, or uh, the delivery requirements for streaming versus broadcast? Uh, <laughs> depends on who you ask. But yeah, I mean, this this show was Amazon for this show wanted it calm compliant, so it was just really a volume thing, and I think we only ran into two problems in two episodes. Yeah. So they needed this to be calm compliant, so that was the only kind of compromise we had to make where we couldn't, we, we weren't dialogue anchored, so we did have to worry about overall levels on things, and it really only in episodes one and eight was any kind of a problem. Um, but as far as delivery, it's a little, um, the, the way the delivery was is it actually happens backwards. So they QC the 5.1, and then they QC the 2-track, and then the Atmos is last. So they realize if there's a problem in the 5.1 that it exists upstream. So it was, that's the way QC came through, but that was really the only difference. Yeah. And we didn't, you know, typical, you get a snap here, you get a tick sure. here, but nothing, um, nothing hugely difficult. It just took longer because they would wait for things to get QC, get fixed, they'd sign off, then they check the 2-track, then they check the Atmos. Before we take uh, one more question or two, um, can you uh, just give us a sense of like uh, your 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 stage, your mixing room? What's the size of it? What's the the kind of how's it configured? I think it's about forty by fifty or forty yeah. by sixty, maybe. Um, so it's a, that's a big room. It's a bit, it yeah, was it's a, a good feature stage. stage that they turned into a so it was a small feature stage that turned into a pretty big theatrical stage. Um, it's uh, configured for 714, so we actually didn't have front wides or six overheads. But um, uh, I use the wides a lot for the music, knowing that if somebody had wides at home, that it would go there. But yeah, it was a it's a typical you know mid-sized feature room. Yeah, Te technical or stage four. Cool. Another question. Yeah, I was just wondering um, specifically, what did you use to create the wings, the the sound of the wings themselves, and then create the motion for them? Did you use like a, a processing plugin, or did you just pan them manually? Or 
I can't speak to the specifics of that because I didn't actually design the wings themselves. Oh, okay. Uh, I can send a text and find out. But <laughs> um, on the on the stage itself, I had typically four tracks for each character's wings. Uh -huh. um, most of the time, all the wings were the same. The only instance that they were uh, very different was in the the fight sequence. Uh, if you haven't seen it, there's a fight, a knife fight in the sky between two winged fae. Okay. Um, and as far as the movement went, they would create some movement with the tracks. Um, you know, kind of almost like a uh, car driving. You know, you gotta give me something with some shifts or something like that. But then mm -hmm. I would add a lot of additional movement either through panning. Uh, EQ and just compression, like I said, just constantly riding that throughout the sequence to give it another level of movement. Great. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe uh, we got time for one more question. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so when you're dealing with uh, like creating an environment like the row and it's so busy and you have so many elements of Walla and BGs coming together, I feel like there's just a lot of opportunity for noise to get in the way. How do you? like fight that fight and keep things busy, but still clear and, oh, that's that and that's that, and giving your ear things to grab on. Um, it's difficult because, yeah, it's, it's really easy to just throw a whole bunch of stuff in there and then you just have a wall of sound. Um, so we were really specific to that. It, it was, typically they were always moving in the road. There's a few instances where they'd kind of stop and have a conversation, but for the most part, they're always kind of moving throughout the rows so we were able to introduce and dip out of things and then introduce something new that helped a lot i did have some beds that would kind of play but they were all very uh dynamic um just a lot of eq and picking and choosing what pieces would play at what specific time the, the hardest thing was you know you're in this period piece situation there's it's tough to find things that you can play <laughs> you can't play a you know a plane or a helicopter or a carby or a different type of carby so you kind of you're tied to a handful of things that really work at that time period so that was the hardest part was not feeling like oh there's another you know blacksmith hammer um, that was the main <laughs> one because it stuck out so much that we were constantly annoyed by and i don't need to hear another carriage by for a while but yeah it was just picking and choosing lots of different pieces and try not to be too repetitive but yeah and, and for the dialogue, I mean, I would, that scene in the row, like I said, there was like 26 tracks of group. So I would just probably spend 10 or 15 minutes just pre-dubbing it and panning everything and doing the reverb and doing the EQ. 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That's you guys, TV schedule. I, it's amazing how fast uh, you guys work. And then, you know, I do that and then I'd put the music in and then we put Rob in. And so it was a lot of you just if once you knew where the pieces were then you could really mix the scene i mean we we spent a bunch of time but you would put the music in know where it was sitting got the spread on the music did that and then it was we, you know we'd go through with alex i want to hear this here i want to hear these people i want to make sure i hear the vendor who's cooking the stuff it was just a lot of that and it's just a lot of picking through and going yeah. through and a lot of subtraction yeah and nothing sits still i mean levels always changing on the group on all the background beds and also moving so that nothing's sitting on top of one another so yeah you never just clashing. were able to set the fader at you know no. up and let it go for the scene no it was constant well to your point you know it's also i mean the the, the challenge of, of of sound design and effects mixing often is is you know subtracting and uh and taking stuff away and really using what you 
you, you mindfully using what you do have to kind of shape the attention of the audience and draw their mind, their, their, their attention to specific things. And the show does it really, really well. Mark and Robert, thanks again. Uh, this was, it was really a pleasure to talk with you guys about Carnival World. Congratulations on a fantastic show, and we're looking forward to hearing season two. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for joining us for the conversation about Carnival Row with Mark Fishman and Robert Carr. Join us again in two weeks when we feature a great conversation with the sound team behind Ford versus Ferrari. Till then, this is Glenn Kaiser from the Dolby Institute.